How would you like to feel shielded from the repercussions of any actions you take? Well, the police in our country have qualified immunity. Listen in. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Immunity. Wouldn't it be nice to be immune from diseases? Unfortunately, life doesn't work that way. In terms of the law, at least in theory, it applies equally to all. You do something bad, you get caught, you're going to have to pay. No immunity. But what indeed, what if you do something bad, you do get caught, but you don't even have to worry about paying a price? Sounds impossible, right? Well, the reality is it's just part of the nature of policing. With virtually unlimited access to any number of the tools of violence and the ability to use all of them at will, police are what organized crime would like to be. Above the law, the unfettered ability to rely on physical domination and control without risk of paying a price. No one gets immunity, right? Except for America's police all too often. We all know police have done some really bad things. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, truly countless other awful things. And up until the advent of body cameras and cell phone cameras, they've pretty much always gotten away with it. How is that? Why is that? Can anything be done about it? As our guest on today's Keeping Democracy Alive notes, subjugation and violence against disempowered groups is a constant. Perhaps we see a beginning. The Department of Justice in 2023 concluded that the city of Louisville, Kentucky, and its Metro Police Department violated the constitutional rights of its residents for years, and especially the rights of black people. Imagine knowing you could get away with it. That's the word, immunity. In her new book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, our guest author, Joanna Schwartz, examines the legal protections, including qualified immunity and no-knock warrants that have protected officers from the repercussions of abuse again and again for many decades without interruption. Perhaps until now? Her new book is the product of more than two decades of advocacy and research, Shielded, has been called a timely and necessary investigation into why civil rights litigation so rarely leads to justice or prevents future police misconduct. Please welcome Joanna Schwartz, who is professor of law at UCLA. Thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you so much for having me. Joanna Schwartz teaches civil procedure and courses on police accountability and public interest lawyering. Her writing, commentary, and research about police misconduct, qualified immunity, indemnification, and local government budgeting have been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Christian Science Monitor, ABC News, NBC News, CBS News, of course, CNN, NPR, and elsewhere. Her research has been quoted and cited by the United States Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor and more than two dozen state Supreme Courts, federal circuit courts, 
and federal district courts. Suffice it to say, she knows her stuff. Tell us, please, about the genesis of this book. How did it come to be? Well, I started my my interest and in practice and, and understanding of this area more than 20 years ago when I uh, became a civil rights lawyer in New York City, uh, representing people whose rights had been violated uh, by the New York Police Department and the New York City Department of Corrections that runs Rikers Island. And when I was doing that research, a lot of the questions that, you know, form the core of this book uh, were things that I started thinking about. Um, so, for example, I worked on a case against uh, the New York City Department of Corrections challenging widespread excessive force used by its officers. And when I prepared to depose an officer, so question him under oath, I looked at his personnel file and I saw there was no record of any prior lawsuits against him, even though I knew he'd been sued. So when I asked him during his deposition if he had been sued before, he, he knew that he had, but didn't know how many times, didn't know the allegations, didn't know whether he won or lost, didn't know if anything was paid in the case. And and then when I talked to, in, interviewed or deposed uh, superiors who were supposed to be supervising this officer, they didn't know anything either. And mm. and this was one of the questions that really that really haunted me as I was a young civil rights lawyer trying to change uh, government practices. How how could these cases do much good if nobody even knows about them? So when I became a professor in 2010, I started investigating empirically, look, doing studies systematically, trying to understand this question, whether police departments and officers gather and analyze information from these suits. And, and each question that I asked empirically begged another question. And fast mm. forward 15 years, I have a whole big body of research about uh, the realities of civil rights litigation, about doctrines and defenses like qualified immunity. And then in May 2020, George Floyd was murdered. And, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, people were raising signs saying, and qualified immunity. And I was getting calls from legislators and journalists asking about the realities of civil rights litigation. And I decided to write this book for a broad audience who's uh -huh. interested in these topics to, to lay these, these ideas out in a way that people who don't read law review articles for fun on the weekends could understand and to show the many, many barriers to relief in civil rights cases um, that have been created by the Supreme Court and by state and local governments across the country. It's true. I suppose it takes something horrendous like George Floyd, et cetera, for, you know, to, to wake people up. The, the fact that these officers have, have clearly done things and there have been legal uh, uh, cases and then they were wiped clean. That's just, it, uh -huh. it's amazing. But who knew that? Who knew that? And, and we, 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 we woke up to that with the, the George Floyd uh, explosion, really. And you yeah. say there are silos that exist between police departments and the, the attorneys who represent offices in civil suits. What do you mean? What are those silos? Well, and this is this is the very thing that I first saw when I was working on this case against the New York City Department of Corrections, where the officers and the supervisors within the government agency didn't seem to know anything about these cases. And when I started looking more systematically at governments across the country, what I found was 
that when these cases are filed, uh, the, the, the defendant is notified of the case. I mean, notified that a case has been filed. But the information about the case really travels within the city attorney's office without going over into the police department. And and what I heard when I talked to lawyers about this, they said that they, first of all, thought that these cases were frivolous and there was nothing to to review, but also were afraid that if they turned this information over to the police department and then the department didn't do anything, it could be a basis for more findings of liability against the department. Um, you know, the other way to look at this is if you have this information, you can address the underlying problems and prevent the future suits from happening. Mm-hmm. But that was not the perspective that they were taking <laughs> on the issue. Well, if you just want them to go away, <laughs> that's another way to do it, too, to pretend right, it doesn't right. exist. Now, right. on the other hand, we have police. We ask them to do, we require them to do dangerous, risky things in the name of public safety. They're forced to make quick decisions that don't always turn out perfectly. Don't they need some degree of protection from the many lawsuits which could result in... how, How did this qualified immunity come to be? So I think that that qualified immunity came to be out of the exact concerns that you are talking about. Um, the Supreme Court first created qualified immunity in 1967, and they talked about it as a good faith defense. It was a um, it came up in a case where officers arrested people under a statute that was later found to be unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court said, look, we can't have officers worrying about being bankrupted uh, for lawsuits on the one hand and being charged with dereliction of duty if they don't act, we need to have some protections in place. That was the initial idea. But a a couple things have happened. Um, One is the protection of qualified immunity has gotten stronger and stronger and stronger so that today, Uh even if an officer has violated the Constitution in bad faith, they can be protected so long as there's not a prior court case with nearly identical facts. That's one shift that's, I think, gone too far on the side of protection. Um, But in addition to that, officers uh, are already insulated from any financial uh, costs of these cases for reasons that have nothing to do with qualified immunity. In fact, at the same time that the Supreme Court was creating qualified immunity, state and local governments worried about the exact same thing were creating what are called indemnification statutes and policies that meant that when an officer was sued, that they would be provided with a lawyer and settlements and judgments would be paid from the local government. So these indemnification statutes were being created by state and local legislatures to protect officers at the same time that the Supreme Court was creating qualified immunity for the same purpose. And then the Supreme Court also interpreted the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment, which Mm -hmm. covers most of these cases, to allow officers to make reasonable mistakes. If an officer has made a reasonable mistake, arrested the wrong person, shot an unarmed person, they haven't violated the Constitution so long as they acted reasonably under the circumstances they knew of at the time. So 
part of my argument with this book is that these concerns about needing to protect officers, recognizing that they do do a dangerous job um, and that things don't turn out perfectly, those interests have motivated the Supreme Court to create multiple overlapping barriers to relief and local governments and state governments also to create protections. So we have, uh, you know, multiple protections for the same concerns that overlap and are, to my view now, far far stronger than any reasonable justification uh, for those protections. Yeah, I know that uh, having worked as a legislator myself in the New Hampshire State Senate, we there was a phrase, belt and suspenders. You yes, used... I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. <laughs> it is. It's, it's belts and suspenders and, and even a couple more things as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's, it's like extra protection. And again, having worked uh, in a law factory... Huh, for 14 years, making the laws. Uh, I, each word is so important. You, yeah. Some of the words I heard you use, reasonable, good faith. How the heck does one define that? And how? I mean, there's so much more to talk about here. Uh, this may bring up the uh, Harlow versus Fitzgerald case and its significance with regard to reasonableness and good faith. Sure, well... Uh, Harlow versus Fitzgerald is a case from 19, <coughs> excuse me, 1982 that marked a really important shift in qualified immunity um, rules. And this is the case that moved from this good faith defense idea to an objective standard that the court called clearly established law. And what the oh. court wanted to do when they shifted the standard was to try to make it easier to get cases dismissed on qualified immunity without having to have officers uh, be deposed, meaning questioned under mm. oath or have to go to trial. The court talked about the importance of shielding officers from the burdens and distractions of being sued in insubstantial cases. Um, but there's a lot of key terms there, right? Yeah. What is insubstantial? Yeah, what really. is clearly established? And um, and the, the way in which the court has defined clearly established law has gotten narrower and narrower and narrower oh. and narrower. And this is how uh, the court now says, it has to be clearly established to any law enforcement officer. And the way in which it's going to be clearly established is if there's a prior court case with nearly identical facts. And it's, it's kind of a remarkable thing because they're, they're talking about the importance of officers being on notice of these cases. I've done research showing officers don't aren't actually trained about the facts and holdings of these kinds of cases. It's, it's a fiction that officers mm. would be on notice about the facts and holdings of these cases. But it's still how the court has decided to create this protection for officers. Interesting. And and lawyers, I know, you know, it's, it's part of the job is to, to research and to, to nail down the laws and what the history is and what it means. But the people who enforce the laws... They, they don't they don't have that uh, motivation necessarily to to dig into you know how rulings have been and, and what the precedents are so that uh, it, it's different on different sides 
And yeah, money. You know, when police are currently faced with lawsuits, if a, what happens now if a plaintiff is successful, it doesn't come from the officer. Where right. does the, where does the money for the for the <laughs> settlement uh, come from? And it, it, it creates. Well, talk about that if you would please. Sure, of course. Yes. Yeah. So I did this this study finding that money to satisfy settlements and judgments in these cases virtually never comes from the police officer themselves. In fact, I looked at 81 jurisdictions across the country over a six year period. I found that 0.02 percent of the dollars came from officers. Mm. It was just officers in two jurisdictions. They paid an average of $4,000 when they were required to pay. And so then the 99.98% of the dollars is coming from local governments or from insurance companies. So small jurisdictions usually have liability insurance. Large jurisdictions are self-insured. And so the money's coming from the city. And not even, as I did in the follow-up research, I found that, that this money usually does not even come from the police department's budget, it comes from central funds. Um, mm. And so that means that, you know, if, if lawsuit payments go down, it, it's not like the police department has more money or if lawsuit payments go up, they have to cut back in other areas. Instead, mm. I found that when there's more money paid in these suits than is anticipated, the money, extra money to satisfy them gets taken from other parts of local government's budgets. Oh. And unfortunately, it tends to be parts of the budget that are earmarked for the most vulnerable and, and least politically powerful. I, I talked to a lawyer in Chicago who said, uh, our former lawyer in Chicago, who said, you know, when police payments went up, lead paint testing went down, um, which is, you know, a, a real tragedy, particularly given that those most vulnerable mm -hmm. uh, are also probably the, the ones most likely to be abused by the police to begin with. Um, so it's a it's a it's a real mistake and lost opportunity, in my view, for local governments to give police departments the incentive, the financial incentive to do better. Wow, Ooh, that I, I I doubt many people are aware of that living in uh, various different municipalities uh, where where that money comes from. If you just tuned they in, should read my book. That's <laughs> true. If you just tuned in, we're talking to the author of the book. The book is titled "Shielded: How the Police Became Untouchable." Our guest is uh, Joanna Schwartz, professor of law at UCLA, and this is some amazing stuff that we don't generally think about because a lot you know most of us frankly don't see this we don't you know it's, it's sort of invisible but it's it's quite real and so this money situation I mean having to tap the municipal budget and you know they tend to always go uh, to the people who can least afford it uh, because they don't have the voice quite frankly does this create a financial incentive for reform? And, and has that worked? How does it work? What are different, more fair ways to, to fund, uh, you know, to have a, a fund there uh, to, to pay for uh, loss, settlements and lawsuits? Well, I think that there are uh, other ways to, to do this. Um, and there are jurisdictions um, 
not very many, mm-hmm. but there are some that do take the money, do do have the the law enforcement agencies pay from their own budgets. And and I spoke to a handful of people who work in those agencies. They didn't have concerns about the arrangement. And and in fact they said they they thought that it gave them good reason to um to take account of of the costs of these cases. Um, so I think that's one uh one fix. There's another related problem and I think potential solution, uh, which is that most, as I as I described, most police departments don't gather and analyze information from these suits with an eye to preventing uh-huh. these things from happening in the future. And I think those two things must be related at least to some degree. You know, if if a if a department has no financial incentive to address these right. problems, then why are they going to pay attention to them? True. And and this is a place where I think that readers and listeners who are interested in trying to make a difference can can do tangible, important work with their own local representatives, with city councils. Uh, why why can't we have an arrangement where, as a condition of police department funding and budgeting? Uh, they be required to make these payments out of their budgets and be required to report to their local city council about the trends that they see in these cases mm. and and ways to improve. Th- these are these are things that uh, that can be done, and particularly in the time of um, fiscal uh, hardship that yeah. many jurisdictions are in, it makes it makes sense. Um, to to have an accounting of these cases, where the money's going, why why these cases keep happening, and and encourage departments um, to to try to prevent them from happening in the first place. Sweeping it under the rug is so much easier, though. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> you you mentioned the Fourth Amendment, and of course, uh, you know. Everybody says they love the Constitution, but quite frankly, mm-hmm. uh, please remind listeners what that is and in what ways it might be the basis for civil rights claims against law enforcement officers. The Fourth Amendment. Sure. Yeah, the Fourth Amendment plays a big part in uh, in claims against law enforcement officers. And, and the key language to remember is... Uh, unreasonable searches and seizures. This, mm. The Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. And this is another um, uh, touchstone or, or key word to, to keep in mind. What is reasonableness really? here under these circumstances? And, you know, if you hear that language, unreasonable searches and seizures, um, certainly when I hear that language, I think of it in terms of my own experience. If I was arrested um, or searched or had force used against me, which is part, goes under the umbrella of seizure, uh, and mm-hmm. I hadn't done anything wrong, I would think that was unreasonable. Mm-hmm. But the way in which the Supreme Court has interpreted the Fourth Amendment, reasonableness is considered from the perspective of the police officer, uh-huh. the police officer on the scene in the moment. And what that ends up meaning is an officer can um, arrest someone, shoot them, kill them, uh, assault them, search them uh, when they have done nothing wrong. And so long as the officer believed 
that their conduct was reasonable under the circumstances or unless it was, quote unquote, objectively reasonable. So a reasonable officer under the circumstances would have made the same decision. Then there's no constitutional violation at all. Mm. The reasonable um, man yeah. standard. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Wow. What is reasonable? There is no. Hmm. It, it can't be uh, really defined. It's it's so difficult to leave it at that. And and there's the, the phrase bad faith too. Is it done in good faith? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I did it in good faith. And well, I mean, and take the example. There's a there's a case in the book that I talk about about a man named Andrew Scott who was in his home after he delivered pizzas for a living in his home, playing video games with his girlfriend. At, at you know after midnight and um, officers came to his door banged on his door they there was a there was a motorcycle parked near his his apartment that they suspected was involved in a crime that was that was what they had it was mm-hmm. a big apartment complex his was the closest door and the light was on they banged on his door at 1 30 in the morning he and didn't announce themselves he and his girlfriend wondered what in the world was going on Andrew went to the bedroom, got a gun that he legally possessed, mm-hmm. has a Second Amendment right to possess, mm-hmm. went to the door to answer the door uh, with the gun down at his side, opened the door, and these uh, sheriff's deputies started shooting, and they killed him. And the, the court that heard the case said, well, this is tragic, but there's no constitutional violation here because... The officers saw a gun, thought this person could be involved in, you know, with with this motorcycle that could have been involved with a crime. And so it was reasonable for the officer to shoot him. That was found to be no, there is no constitutional violation. Oh, wow. And so many cases where we've heard it said by police officers, we thought he may have been going for his or her gun. Yes. That happens yes. so often. Uh, it, yes. It, it, and that's the justification. And is I wonder how the courts generally deal with that. If the officer says, we, th- we were, I mean, they're fearing for their lives, they say. And yes. they, they think perhaps by reaching in a pocket or going in a glove compartment, they were going for a gun. Uh, that's right. And, and, and that is, um, uh, that is the, what that catchphrase um ends up uh, meaning sometimes is that if it was considered reasonable for the mm-hmm. officer to believe that mm-hmm. the person had a gun, mm-hmm. then there's no constitutional violation. Mm. I tell another story of a person who was unarmed and shot. Uh, the officer said that he thought that the, the, that the person had, same as David Colley, had a gun in his hand. He did not. His hands were empty to his to his statement, and there was no gun found. But the court found no constitutional violation because the officer, uh, in the court's view, reasonably believed that he was at risk. I am not, I I can't remember the name of the young man who was recently uh, taken out of his car. There's, there's, luckily there's video of it, uh, who uh, the police shot and and did kill. And uh, I, I wonder how, if, if, there was if there were constitutional uh, uh, protections there for the uh, individual or for the police it's it certainly does get messy well and and you know i i don't know which specific case mm, you're I, so referring many. to there yeah. there are so many um and and not all cases 
get to the point of a court having to decide, particularly when uh, there is uh-huh. a video. I think there can be that the political salience of these issues can um, can mean they end up getting settled um, quickly. Uh, you know, just uh, as, as an example, um, George Floyd, the, the murder of George Floyd, uh, the, the, the civil case was settled um, quickly, you know, without any fighting over whether the Fourth Amendment was violated or whether the officers were entitled to qualified immunity. But there are other cases where people have died in much the same way that George Floyd did yes. with a knee to the neck and the back where officers did get qualified immunity and the cases were dismissed. And so part of my goal in this book is to focus on cases you haven't heard about, Uh cases that haven't gotten that political attention, because those are the cases where these protections are the strongest. And certainly the the person who had the, uh, the cell phone camera, those cell phone cameras, they haven't been around that long. But police and you know, different groups of people, disempowered people have been around for a very long time. And one, I, I hesitate to imagine how many thousands of basically George Floyd's there have been over mm-hmm. the years because nobody had a camera to see it. But they've been going on yeah. a very long time. And it brings, yeah. brings up a quote from you. You say that subjugation and violence against disempowered groups is a constant now, we Northerners reactively assume it's more prevalent and has its origins in the old Confederacy and the mindset, which more than ever now has a hold on the Republican Party. <clears throat> uh, you say the origins of policing styles, uh, are, it, 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 there's a commonality throughout the geography mm. of the United States. It's not just the South. Tell us, please, about the various models and, and what they share in common in this front. Sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting to uh, think about this history and to and to learn about this history. Um, there's actually three, at least three, origin stories for policing in the United States. Uh, in the South, police forces were an outgrowth of slave patrols, so involved in the subjugation of black people from from their very inception. Right. Um, in the Southwest. The Texas Rangers were sort of the beginnings of law enforcement, and studies of the Texas Rangers have found that they killed uh, uh, Mexicans, Mexican Americans, and indigenous people with the frequency of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, they mm-hmm. were a, a, a terror organization mm-hmm. operating in the Southwest. Uh, in the North, policing came, it was imported or the ideas of policing from the Metropolitan Police in London. So there was a very different origin story for Northern policing starting through in the, in the New York Police Department. But there, uh, the police often were focused on uh, subjugating, surveilling, um, arresting, the working class, the immigrants. Yes. Um, and so in in all of these different origin stories uh, of policing across the country, you do see the subjugation of the least powerful um, in the in the area. But they do come from these different uh, origin stories. And I can't help but think that 
protecting property is a, a high priority rather than necessarily, I mean, it's easier to define property, private property, than it is the common good, pub, the public safety and uh, sure. property, you know, they pay the bills, they pay the taxes, <laughs> at least allegedly. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is the author of a new book, important book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Uh, it's Professor Joanna Schwartz. Um, and if, um, if the immunity, well, I wonder about, there was that case in Memphis, the scorpion where mm-hmm. you know they're they're now disbanded they killed tyre nichols uh, got a lot of mm-hmm. news the name stood scorpion so for street crimes operation to restore peace in our neighborhoods and that was going into allegedly dangerous neighborhoods fully mm-hmm. armed fully you know ready to go uh using violence as a first step to answer any threat of violence and mm-hmm. of course, what could go wrong there? How important uh, was it for the members of, of the Scorpion Unit to know they had some degree of immunity for the special work they were assigned? I think that these so-called elite units mm-hmm. have been a problem in our nation's uh, policing apparatus for decades. and. Um, there's been a lot of work and discussion about this. Radley Balco has done um, some terrific reporting on this point as well, that essentially these elite units uh, are created in response to spikes in crime. And essentially these units are given massive authority, Mm. massive discretion, very little in the way of oversight. And then again and again and again, they engage in, high-profile acts of misconduct and violence and torture and then are disbanded and then as though we have a collective amnesia are are once again granted this authority the next time there's a spike in crime and i can't i can't see into these officers hearts and minds to know exactly how they are responding to the fact that there isn't meaningful supervision and control. But but you certainly can see, I think that that as affecting to me, as distressing to me, um, as the, the images of the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols, is the is the video occurring after the beating where officers are standing yes. around joking laughing about the punches and the kicks that they delivered yes. n- with with minute after minute going by with no medical attention given to Mr. Nichols this is the indication of a systemic problem mm-hmm. and a view that there are no consequences these officers knew they had body cameras on and there does not seem to be concern and they knew that there were many other officers there they did not seem to have concern that what they did was wrong or or perhaps they knew what they did was wrong and they knew that there would be no no consequences i'm still amazed by the the image of uh i i hate to even remember his name derek chauvin with his hands in his pockets as he was mm. killing george floyd in the moment mm-hmm. he was committing murder oh he was just casually there with his hand in his pocket amazing mm. to me and mm-hmm. you know there is a commonly held picture of white police using inappropriate violence against 
Uh-huh. Black citizens, people of color. Some, in an effort to advance accountability and justice, imagined oh. that, well, part of the answer was to hire a more diverse police force. Then, of course, the five black officers beat and killed another man, Tyree Nichols, in Memphis. So adding diversity didn't seem to adequately address the problem. You say there's a deeper systemic pathology that leads to this kind of violence. What motivates someone to to want to be a police officer? What is this systemic pathology? Please define that. Well, you know, I'm I'm not a psychologist, and and uh, and and can't uh, say what motivates people to become right. police officers or or what the psychological determinants are. There's actually another another terrific psychologist named Philip Atiba Goff who who does work in this area, but I think that what I've read and what I understand uh, is that there is a cultural conditioning in uh-huh. law enforcement agencies. Um, and the, the, the race of the officer uh, <coughs> in studies hasn't been um, cons- found to be relevant in terms right. of who uses excessive force. It's, it's undeniably true that victims of misconduct are disproportionately black, Latino, and mm-hmm. indigenous. But you can't make the same kinds of claims about the race of the officers. And I think this does point Hmm. to this larger, um, deeper acceptability within the institution of policing, particularly in in certain departments, maybe more than than others, that tolerates and potentially rewards Hmm. this kind of excessive force. And and it does go to your point. You know, I think that that there may be benefits of diversification of police departments, but the idea that that is mm-hmm. in and of itself a magic fix um, is, you know, is clearly shown not to be yeah. true. And and the the officers involved in Tyree Nichols is is the most direct and obvious uh, evidence of that. Yeah, that's it's important. And one other area I want to get to is the courts themselves. When a case comes before a judge, my impression is, and, and violence or not, they almost always give extra weight to the testimony of police in courts uh, mm-hmm. against just a civilian, even without violence or physical abuse. Does the context of immunity exacerbate injustices in these judges' rulings, do you think? I think that happens a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that there's two, at least two great points that you that you make in there. And, and I talk in Shielded, I have a whole chapter about judges and, and the great discretion that they have in these civil rights cases and in, and in any case that comes before them. Um, to rule on on the big questions, like whether there was a constitutional violation, but also on smaller questions like, or seemingly smaller questions, like whether they're entitled to discovery or whether their experts can testify or who sits on the jury. And those kinds of discretionary decisions can rarely be appealed. So the trial judge has the final word and, wow. and it matters. It can matter a great deal. And oh, I think yeah. that the way in which judges who are sitting in these cases perceive the plaintiffs um, and perceive the officers mm-hmm. can play a big role. And, and I agree. I mean, there's certainly wow. um, evidence 
out there, there's, there's evidence out there that the ways in which um, judges view the world and the way in which people view the world impact the way in which they as judges and as juries um, assess the credibility of officers. And, mm-hmm. you know, police are, have been for, for as long as these kinds of surveys have been done, have been viewed as one of the most trusted sure. um, professions that we, that we have. And so, yes, that leads to a thumb on the scale in yes. favor of officers and, and and immunity, this this notion and the underlying justification for immunity that we need to protect officers doing this difficult work um, is just is a further opportunity to to uh, to offer this protection. But again, I think you have to think about immunity as as one of many mm-hmm. overlapping protections not just immunity, not just the protections of the Constitution, not just protections of indemnification, which means officers don't pay, not just uh, judges who are able in their discretionary decisions to give them the benefit of the, of the doubt, but right. all of that put together. Wow. Gee, what a surprise. We have a big mass incarceration problem <laughs> in this country. How did that come to be? And the, the, the officers who work in prisons, whoa, I, I saw in, in 2021, there was a, a uh, documentary nominated for uh, Best Documentary. It didn't win, but it was just called Attica. It was amazing. Oh, I, I mm-hmm, thought I knew mm-hmm. all about it. It was unbelievable. The officers mm. who work in prisons, what's the status of immunity for their actions? And how, you know, do, do they, what kind of freedom from worrying about doing something bad do they have? I mean, they have a... a, a Yes, I would say that the protections that corrections officers enjoy are uh, even stronger than police um, for a couple of reasons. One, they they still have uh, qualified immunities protections. Um, On top of that, the claims that are brought against corrections officers are brought not under the Fourth Amendment, which has that reasonableness standard, but under the Eighth Amendment, um, which is a deliberate indifference standard, which, again, is another catchphrase, but but ends up meaning that officers essentially have to intentionally want to cause harm. And then on top of that, you have protections that Congress enacted under what's called the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which was um, this was the a, a set of protections that was intended to um, shield officers from insubstantial cases, and they talked about the you know a case where an off where a prisoner was complaining about having chunky peanut butter instead of smooth peanut butter as mm-hmm. their as their sort of example, like the like the hot coffee McDonald's case, oh, you know, sort of a prime right. example of the abuses of the system, but. The way in which the Prison Litigation Reform Act works, it limits the ability of lawyers bringing even successful cases to get paid in these cases. Um, It limits the recovery of uh, prisoners. It requires them to administratively exhaust all of their claims within the prison system before they bring a lawsuit uh, and and many more. So so the challenges of bringing and Mm. winning a case involving prison conditions is mm. exponentially harder. Mm. I just can't imagine. And of course, there's the political power of groups like the 
chief of police associations, the police unions, and politicians at the state and local level feel highly intimidated by them. I mean, you talk about, you know, judges looking at officers in courts and, you know, they they don't want to go against them. And in mm-hmm. these public situations, as with, as with the federal military budget, elected officials don't dare risk mm-hmm. looking soft on crime. So yeah. local and state level, how much of an impediment to the kind of immunity reform we need is this kind of thing, these, these associations? I, police unions have been very active in recent um in recent debates about qualified immunity and, and the federal Congress uh, considered and ultimately failed to act on uh, the George Floyd justice and policing act, which would have limited qualified immunity Uh, state governments, state legislatures Mm. around the country, more than half of the states around the country have introduced legislation that would limit or end qualified immunity and unions have incredibly active Uh, the strongest mouthpiece um, against these reforms. And they make arguments uh, again and again that will uh, create massive amounts of fear for these legislatures. Mm -hmm. They they say again and again that police officers will be bankrupted for reasonable mistakes without qualified immunity. And I've spent my legal career testing that and and other claims about the needs for these kinds of immunities. Mm. And for reasons we've talked about earlier in this discussion, the idea that without qualified immunity, officers will be bankrupted for reasonable mistakes is is simply untrue. There's these indemnification policies around the country, not qualified immunity, that is protecting officers from settlements and judgments where officers are paying 0.02% of the dollars awarded to plaintiffs and are paying $4,000 on average, which is not the makings of a bankruptcy petition. Mm -hmm. And you already know enough about the Fourth Amendment and its protections against uh, constitutional violations for reasonable mistakes to know that officers don't violate the Constitution when they make reasonable mistakes. So union officials have been hugely, hugely influential in beating back mm-hmm. uh, sensible police reforms, and they've done so by uh, raising fears that have no basis in reality about the dangers of too much justice for people whose constitutional rights have been violated. Fear. Fear is so powerful. I mean, let's face it, it's one of the most powerful things there is in politics and in making government manipulation of fear. And certainly these legislators at the state and municipal level, uh, they don't want (laughs) to be feeling that fear. One of the parts about the research for your book, you included talking to police officers themselves with all the attention on what's been pervasive violence and abuse so much you know, in the limelight now, what, what do they want? What, what are their suggestions for solutions? So my research, I, I, I certainly spoke to some police officials. Um, I didn't do a big survey of, of line level officers, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. there have been other surveys that have been done. And I actually think that there's, there, there is a lot of, Overlap. There are there are opportunities for overlap here. Officers want to be safe. Yes. Uh, they want to get home to their families. <clears throat> they want to know that they're not going to be bankrupted for 
split second mistakes that they make on the job. They also, uh, in, in surveys, indicate that they do want bad officers to be punished. Mm-hmm. They want sanctions for bad officers. Bad officers make good officers' jobs more difficult. Mm-hmm. And police officials want the power to be able to discipline and fire their officers without those decisions being overturned in arbitration proceedings that are, you know, put into place by unions. So I think there are places of of important overlap here. Police officers want to be safe. Police officers don't want to be doing things outside of their level or outside of their areas of expertise. They don't want to be responding uh-huh. to people in mental health crisis, oh, okay. you know? And so I think that there's areas, important areas of overlap. And in fact, when I, I have, uh, I was involved in some, some um, off the record hearings or d- discussions with members of Congress as they were considering the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And I was the person in favor of qualified immunity reform. And then there was a lawyer who represents officers who was the voice against qualified immunity reform. And we actually had, a, there were places where we could mm-hmm. reach agreement, um, agreement about the notion that officers um, should not be personally liable in these cases, that the local governments should take on these costs and agreement that there could be protections when officers were actually able to point affirmatively to a policy or a law that they relied upon when acting. Uh, so I think there's there's areas of agreement. I, I just I think we need to uh, to find them and and uh, move forward with those. Boy, there usually is. It's so hard to find generally. People uh, get backed up against the wall, but uh, you're right. And if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about an important part of democracy, and that's the law, equal you know, equal justice under the law. Our guest today is a, a professor of law, Joanna Schwartz, uh, who's got a new book out called uh, Shielded. How the Police Became Untouchable. She's a professor at law at UCLA, where she teaches civil procedure and courses on police accountability and public interest lawyering. Well, as one of my favorite people to quote, H.L. Mencken said, for every Hmm. complex problem, there's a simple solution. And it's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) One example is defunding the police. I, oh Hmm. man, it, it clearly backfired. Big time. What kind of reform should be called for? And have there been examples of what works? It sounds like there have been. I mean, as you say, police, they don't want the the bad guys in there. It only makes their job harder. I do think that there are steps that Mm -hmm. can and should be taken that uh, people who want there to be a smaller policing footprint um, Mm -hmm. and those who are more focused on law enforcement officers' safety should be able to agree mm-hmm. upon. Um, mm-hmm. One, for as I mentioned a second ago, one is uh, limiting the extent to which police are involved in going to calls involving people who are having mental right. health crises. Right. Um, you can see in Philadelphia, they have introduced a policy limiting 
police authority to conduct low-level traffic stops, um, nonviolent traffic stops. And in fact, the the Los Angeles um, Police Union, the largest union for police officers um, in the city of Los Angeles, just uh, issued a statement where they said they don't want to be involved in policing nonviolent, low-level mm-hmm. offenses. So there there is agreement there. Um, uh, and I think that if we see areas of agreement, we should move on them as soon as possible and, and get them done. I also think there's there's interesting those are you could think of those as sort of front end interventions, you know, preventing mm-hmm. these harms from happening. Um, it gets a little dicier to find agreement when it comes to back end accountability when officers violate the law. Um, but there is uh, some movement in these areas and Colorado, New Mexico and New York City have all passed legislation that effectively ends qualified immunity in those states. And the the this the uh, the world has not collapsed, you know, since those bills have been enacted. Um, I think it's really important and I hope to do some research to try to measure on the ground what is happening in these jurisdictions as a result. But we should think of those as as models and try to figure out how to replicate them in other in other states across the country. And I'm sure I can't remember the, the name. There was a, a fairly well publicized case of, of somebody who was walking the street late at night, I believe a person of color who had some mental difficulties. Some, you know, he was uh, and the police came out and and the young man, uh, I believe, uh, was killed. They don't want to be doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be some way of when when local budgets, police budgets happen, you know, to, to perhaps move some of the budget to, uh, you know, mental health. Uh, you know, somebody else should be doing that, not the police, somebody who's a little bit more skilled at that kind of thing. And I think, again, I think that police officials um and and officers um would agree i don't i don't think that it's you know there's there's not agreement when it's referred to in in terms of abolition but i think there is can be agreement to in the in the principle or the 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 practical application which is let's get police out of the job of uh, responding to people in mental health crises yes that would, that would make so much sense. So as with many societal problems, most people aren't visibly affected. The vast majority of people, they don't face these situations equally. So a person may be untouched by this issue of police immunity and people listening. What can you say to people like this who have not been directly impacted? Why should they care and perhaps get involved? And what can you suggest? You know, part of the reason that I wrote Shielded was to try to make these barriers and burdens really um, understandable, but also and relatable um, and also personally affecting. I think my hope is that um, someone reading this book, even if they themselves haven't experienced um, the kinds of events I describe right. are able to feel sympathy uh-huh. and and imagine themselves in these situations. Right. It's it's also important to note that I try to tell the stories of a wide variety of people um, whose lives have been over uh, upturned mm-hmm. by police misconduct. I tell the story of a woman named 
Vicky Timpa, whose son was killed in police custody. He's a white executive who made a quarter of a million dollars a year and was engaged to be married and had an eight-year-old son. And she'd never expected to get a call mm. saying that her son had died in police custody. And I think that those reading this book, my, my hope is that those reading this book are never actually affected, uh, ne never actually have to answer that kind of call, but can, through reading the book, imagine what it would be like if they were and and how much they would need the courts to help step in and how uh, the system is currently designed to make that less frequent than it should be. And obviously defunding the police was a simple solution that backfired. It's not the solution. What's the solution is a more complex uh, it virtually every complex problem there there is a complex solution there are things that can be done there are things that should be done uh, a lot of well, dare i say common sense may be involved here and it takes some uh, some action on, on people's parts fascinating mm -hmm. stuff important to learn the book is called shielded how the police became untouchable and our guest has been Joanna Schwartz, its author. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, there, I, some some improvement is going to happen. I feel it. <laughs> I do, too. I do, too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Police at the ease in the street. Oh, yeah. Scaring the nation with the Guns and ammunition Police have the ease in the street Oh yeah Fighting the nation with their Guns and ammunition And all the crowd come in Day by day And no one stops it If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.